This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Technology is just drastically increasing the scope of risk. Now, sometimes when we increase privacy, it's also possible to actually help national security too. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Smart Women Smart Power is partnering with Girl Security for a special series dedicated to conversations between young national security scholars and established national security leaders. My colleague Alexis Day helps moderate these insightful conversations. I hope you enjoy. Caitlin and Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. So the way this is going to work, just so our listeners know, is we'll get to know a little bit about Kennedy, who is joining us from Girl Security today, and then I'll pass it over to her to start her conversation with Caitlin. Kennedy, welcome. I want to first ask you about your background and interest in technology, privacy, and its impact on individual rights. It's surely a timely topic. What got you interested in this topic? Hi, Ms. Alexis. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. And as someone who's interested in philosophy, global citizenship, individual rights, and technology privacy, I find the intersection of these interests with national security issues very fascinating. Among the various challenges faced in the national security community, the issue of technology privacy and data collection and its impact on individual rights interests me the most. So I've found myself working and becoming interested in these issues, specifically in the tech field, because of the current cybersecurity and cyber warfare attacks. I always receive notifications of compromised passwords and potential account hacks, um, whether that be through Apple or another third-party account. And I'm always interested as to you know, how does this even happen? You know, if it's leaked and I change it, will it happen again? And secondly, I would also talk about data collection. So when I sign up for apps, websites, and agree to the terms and conditions, I want to know more beyond that and how it truly affects me when I agree to these things. Well, I'm definitely eager to learn more about this as well, because it definitely affects all of us in our everyday lives. So any of the perfect guests to talk to about such topics, Kennedy, I'll officially pass the mic over to you to begin your conversation with Caitlin Chin, who is joining us from our Strategic Technologies program here at CSIS. Over to you. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much, Kennedy, for having me on the podcast. All right. So, Caitlin, how did you find yourself working on national security issues, specifically in the tech field? Well, first of all, it was very unplanned, <laughs> like very, very much an accident, as actually with many things in my life. Back when I was in high school, I had no idea that I would be working in data privacy all of these years later. I don't even think I knew that data privacy, technology, national security existed as a career field. Just like you, I received those notifications about data breaches. But I, I think I, at the time, I just thought of privacy as all of those annoying terms of service agreements that everybody has to click through in order to use a website. I didn't even know that it was possible to make a career out of this. But all of that changed back when I was in college and grad school. I had the opportunity to intern with the government affairs departments of VMware, which is a cybersecurity company, and Verizon, the telecommunications company. And at the time, I was just interested in learning about 
public policy and government affairs in general. So how does the legislative process work? How do companies or other organizations advocate before the government? But I realized I was actually really interested in the technology policy topics itself. I first started getting interested in privacy around 2018. And this is around the time, I don't know if all of you remember, but um, the news about Cambridge Analytica came out, basically that Meta had shared a lot of personal information with a third party research company that ended up using this information to try to target ads based on people's sensitive demographics on behalf of Donald Trump's political campaign. Also in the summer of 2018, a major Supreme Court decision was released, Carpenter v. United States, about the privacy of our cell phone geolocation histories. So it's just a super, super interesting field to be in. In the past five years, there have been so many developments, both in terms of the technology itself, but also in terms of how governments and companies are responding to these really intricate privacy, national security challenges all around the world. And to your initial question, like, how did I get into this field? How did I become interested in privacy? I I should also add that I've had some really wonderful mentors along the way that encouraged me to get into this field. And I've also had the opportunity to take super interesting classes in school that directly related to national security or privacy. So so all of that, I think, really shaped the way that I see the intersection of privacy, national security, technology, ethics, and everything else you mentioned today. Wow, that's amazing. I also remember I was small at the time, but the Cambridge Analytica, that fiasco, and I know that was really, really big. So the next question is, how do you perceive the tension between national security concerns and the protection of individual rights in the context of technology privacy? So what are the main ethical considerations that need to be addressed? Ooh, this is a big question. And I think that there are many of us who just sit around all day thinking about thinking about the about relationships like this. First of all, I'll say I, I definitely do think that there is some sort of inherent tension between national security and privacy and individual civil rights. I mean, often governments whether the U.S. government or other governments will justify things like surveillance in the name of national security, which, of course, is going to have trade-offs with privacy and civil liberties, whether that's things like governments intercepting communications or using like these really creepy facial recognition databases like Clearview AI, which um, I think got a lot of media attention recently, or governments scanning social media accounts, whether that's Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, or others looking for keywords or other posts or content that could potentially lead to an investigation. Or even, I mean, in recent years, we've been seeing the rise of governments purchasing personal information from companies called data brokers. So first of all, here's what I'll say. The law has not really kept up with technology. Over the past five or 10 years, we've seen technology really increase the scope of what surveillance is possible. And that raises really new ethical questions. For for example, traditionally, people have had less privacy in public spaces than in private spaces. So, for example, a, a police officer or an intelligence official might be able to follow somebody in a public place, even if you can't physically enter their houses. But what does this mean when we now have like facial recognition cameras where you can just like put outside or drones that can fly in public spaces? This means that the vision between public and private spaces are just it's just very it's just very tricky. I mean, technology has just drastically enlarged the scope of what surveillance is possible. And I think that raises the question of how do we increase privacy protections to match? And, and I think a really a second like question that that 
still that I think every government is still grappling with is even what is national security? Like maybe we're willing to justify a higher level of surveillance to prevent mass terrorist attacks. But but recently we've also seen governments justify things like economic security as part of national security or fighting disinformation or like increasing even like geopolitical alliances. So I, I think it's an interesting question of in what context are we willing to justify surveillance in? Because we can't use national security as a blanket excuse to justify all surveillance of everybody at all times, right? So there has to be limitations. And I don't think any government has yet figured out exactly how to do that. I agree. You're spot on, especially when I first learned about the Patriot Act and how that truly impacts our lives daily and under the blanket of national security. As technology continues to advance, what emerging trends or developments do you believe will have the greatest impact on the intersection of national security and technology privacy? How should policymakers and society prepare to address these challenges effectively? Yeah. So recently, I've been researching the growth of the data brokerage industry. So data brokers are these really creepy companies that primarily profit from buying and sharing data. I think most Americans probably haven't even heard about them. I mean, I know I hadn't before entering the privacy space, but data brokers, they can collect data in a lot of different ways. Maybe they'll buy geolocation information for people's smartphone apps, or maybe they'll collect shopping history or people's browsing histories. And then they create profiles of people, They, whether that's for advertising purposes or even, I mean, I mean, they can even share this information with law enforcement. And in the past few years, we have seen this trend where governments all around the world, which include governments like the United States, China, EU member states, have purchased data from brokers. I mean, from the perspective of an intelligence agency, why get a warrant or a court order to access somebody's smartphone? location information when it's much easier to just buy that information on the open market. And obviously this raises so many ethical questions and privacy concerns. And I do think that this is an area where technology has you know, far outpaced existing law and where policymakers and society, I mean, not only are they not prepared to address these challenges effectively, but they can't even agree about like where to start or what to do about it. And I, I, I also do think that this is another area where t- technology is changing that traditional view of the trade-offs that we were talking about earlier between national security and privacy. I mean, I think in the typical view, governments will engage in surveillance to promote national security, which comes at the expense of privacy. And, and I do hear this argument a lot in the context of data brokers, right? Like, we'll hear national security officials say, well, we need to purchase this cell phone geolocation information, even though it comes with privacy costs, it, it furthers national security. But I, I do think that it gets tricky, right? Because if data brokers can sell information to the U.S. government, what happens if it sells information to foreign governments? I mean, maybe not directly, but it can sell information to front companies who in turn can sell it or share it with foreign governments. And maybe, you know, we can maybe like what happens if governments are able to access information about military personnel or high profile government officials. So so I, I really do think that I think that technology is changing this traditional narrative. It used to be that if we increase privacy, we're hurting security. But I, I think that because of technology, because technology is just drastically increasing the scope of risk. Now, sometimes when we increase privacy, it's also possible to actually help national security too. Yes, that was really interesting. And I didn't even think about the possibility of military personnel, their information being collected and and sent to the data brokers for endless possibilities. In terms of the advent of technologies like 
facial recognition, social media monitoring, data collection, they have raised many concerns about potential abuses of power and discrimination. So how can the national security community ensure that these technologies are used responsibly and don't disproportionately impact marginalized communities or violate individual rights? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that you asked this question, Kennedy, because I think it's important to recognize that surveillance has never affected everybody equally. Throughout history and in the present day, we've seen that people are disproportionately affected by government surveillance, depending on factors like their race or their gender identity or their income or, you know, their sexual orientation. So when we talk about the balance between privacy and surveillance and national security, it's really, really important to consider as well who is most affected by surveillance and what we can do about that. To your question about new forms of surveillance, whether that's social media monitoring or facial recognition, I think the very first thing with the national security community needs to do is understand both the biases and the limitations of these technologies. For example, social media tracking is famously inaccurate. It doesn't pick up on things like context or contentions. It So often for social media monitoring, algorithms will scan for keywords like bomb or gun or try to translate images into try to identify what's in images. But but it doesn't really pick up on like various cultural complexities or, or, or the various intricacies of human language. Like if I type on social media, like you're the bomb or like, you know, like I or I had a blast at the concert, you know, that that might be picked up by an algorithm. But obviously there's no threat or no national security risk of that language. And same with facial recognition. Although facial recognition technologies are improving, I mean, there have been some pretty high profile studies that show that these technologies are less accurate for women and that they're less accurate for Black and Asian individuals compared to white men, which means that unfortunately, these technologies are more likely to return false positives or negatives or actually lead to inaccurate or false arrests for people who have historically been subject to increased policing in the past. So I really think it's it's really important to consider what guardrails we can put in place to also prevent history from repeating itself, whether that's transparency. First of all, people should be able to know how technology is affecting our lives. Like we can't have democracy without technology, which means that government agencies need to be more transparent about how they're using surveillance technologies and who is being affected. And also companies, the companies that develop the algorithms need to be open about how they're processing personal information to develop these technologies and how they're preventing biases and unfair outcomes from these algorithms. But I I don't think transparency is enough, though. We definitely need more clear guardrails on how private companies develop um, algorithms, how they collect personal information from people how they mitigate risks that can step from their algorithms. And, and I think even beyond that, perhaps we have to consider maybe there are just some things that either companies or government agencies just, just shouldn't do because they're so either invasive or ethically ambiguous. And, and I think that these questions are far from settled, but but I really think it's important to ask, like, what are we willing to accept and in what context? Yes, um, as a society, we do need to come to an agreement as to What's too far? Like, what can we not accept as surveillance in the United States? Well, thank you for joining us here at Smart Woman, Smart Power, Caitlin. And I want to conclude by asking a question in regards to your studies 
Do you believe your gender as a woman has had any impact on the way you've approached your studies? And do you have any advice for young girls studying national security? Yes, definitely. First of all, I, I definitely think my gender has impacted, I, I mean, pretty much my entire approach to my work. I really think that one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the intersection of not only technology and privacy and security, but also technology and civil rights is because of who I am and how I've experienced the world. I mean, I think some of the projects I've been most passionate about throughout my career are my research about which communities are most affected by surveillance and how algorithms can reinforce existing societal biases based on the historical training data. But I, I definitely think that there's like this pressure, maybe like this pressure to be perfect in a workplace, especially since Unfortunately, even in 2023, we still have a lot of gendered expectations. Like as a woman, I feel like I'm expected to be nice, but I don't want to be, you know, but not too nice because then people might not take you seriously. And like we have to be confident, but not too confident because we don't want to be seen as self-centered. Um, and I, I definitely think that there's research that shows that women are praised for being like helpful team players, whereas men are expected to take charge and be leaders. And I think that's definitely affected me throughout my career. I remember when I first started out, I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm just so lucky to be here. And I forgot that I'm also allowed to do things like negotiate, um, be confident in my work. And I, I think it's really taken me, it, it really took me at least a few years to become more comfortable and realize that, wow, these expectations are really gendered. And actually, I'm still to this day working on getting past that. And then to your question about advice for younger people who are interested in entering this field. I'll say, first of all, I think that representation is really, really important. Mentorship is also something that I've really benefited from throughout my career. I think that having people to talk to and then also be able to provide mentorship to others is something that has been really, really essential for me. And then the last thing I'll say is definitely don't be afraid to try new things. <laughs> At the beginning of this podcast, we talked about how I had no idea back when I was in high school, that I'd eventually end up working in data privacy. But I saw the opportunity to intern in this field and I kind of took a leap and I ended up loving it. So sometimes branching out, it's definitely scary and it doesn't always pay off, but I, I think it definitely can sometimes. So don't be afraid to jump into new opportunities and new experiences. Thank you for that advice. All right. While this conversation might have scared me a little, I'm also feeling optimistic that we have individuals like Caitlin and Kennedy studying these topics and working to make us safer in the future. Kennedy, before we wrap up, you're joining us as a part of Girls Security. Can you share with us a little bit about how you found out about this organization? I found out about Girls Security through LinkedIn when I was looking for different internships, mentorships, programs, different opportunities, and I came across the summer 2023 cohort. As a high school student, I haven't had that much exposure to national security training um, and education. However, I want to pursue opportunities and receive advice that will help me understand how I can connect my passions and interests to national security. So once I went to the Girls Security website and saw their mission to drive change through education, mentoring, and workforce training, I saw how it aligned well with my values and my goals. It's so important and I'm so happy that you found the organization and to see all that you accomplish in the future. But Caitlin and Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. 
Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SmartWomen, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes1. Thanks for listening and join us next time.